host, me, Marty from The Carillon. Uh, this is a podcast uh, where we're going to talk to some grad students, PhD students, and other people who have done thesis work at the U of R, um, and sort of find out what they study in, and what their fields of interest are, and, uh, and yeah, we're just going to talk about it. Uh, today with me, I have Tyler, I don't know your last name, what's your last name, Tyler? <laughs> Meadows, Meadows. Tyler Meadows. Yeah. Um, and we also have a clown <laughs> sitting behind me. For those of you who can't see the clown, he's wearing ice skates, and I don't trust like that. Uh, so Tyler Meadows, um, first of all, um, let's do a little intro. Uh, Tyler, first of all, you, you work at the Carillon, so tell us what you do at the Carillon, and then could you tell us just a little bit about your academic history, uh, what you majored in, what you did your master's in, and what kind of universities you've been to? Yeah, for sure. So uh, I'm sports editor here at the Carillon, uh, so I try and oversee the sports section as much as possible. Uh, you know, keep it keep it together. Um, you know, lots of U R sports going on right now. So um, you know, there's the football, there's the basketball starting up volleyball next week so lots of stuff going on there and uh, as for my academic uh, history I was actually uh, undergrad at the U of R and I did my uh, major was in psychology and I did a minor in kinesiology and then uh, I, for my honors thesis I did a kind of a, a study about uh, social comparisons and kind of how they affect well-being and how mindfulness can uh, kind of affect that uh, in one way or the other, uh, and then I went to the UK um, for my master's degree. I went to Cardiff Metropolitan University, which is in Wales, Cardiff, Wales. Oh. Yeah, uh, it was a lot of fun. I, uh, I left there two years ago and got back last year. Uh, actually, to this day, I came back on the 19th. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, welcome back. Yeah, well, it's been a year, <laughs> so... Now, okay, I don't know a lot about the UK, but do they speak Welsh in Yeah, Wales? yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, like, uh, to be fair, most people now, especially in the city, speak English, and okay. English only. They know some Welsh, but then there's uh, the, the few people who are fluent in both English and Welsh. Uh, and as you get more into the valley and into the northern parts of uh, Wales, it's more uh, the first language rather than the second language or something like that, you know. Interesting. It, yeah, yeah, it is. Um, so, like, most of my classmates were either English or uh, Welsh, and the Welsh actually get, like, really good discounts. Hmm. Discounts. Um, for the tuition, uh, if you continue uh, in, uh, in school there, and so, like, they, they got uh, their master's paid for a, a lot, paid a lot less than compared to me coming in as an, in as an international student. Right. That was really, that was really interesting, you know. So huh. I can kind of empathize with the international students here, uh, yeah. here now. So it's a different perspective, for sure. And do you speak any Welsh now? I speak no Welsh at all. Okay. The, my favorite Welsh word, though, I know one really, really one, it, it's kutch. And that's like to cuddle or snuggle, and that's like my favorite. Yeah, that's very cute. It is. I like that. I it like is. the way that sounds as well. Yeah, um, no, it's cute. Interesting. Okay, that's very off topic, but uh, interesting fact to know. Um, so you 
majored in psychology, minored in kinesiology. Yeah. And then you talk about this thing called social, what is it, social? Mechanisms of social comparison. Social comparison. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I briefly minored in psychology, but I didn't yep. get all the way through it. So I do not know what social comparison is. Also, maybe some of our listeners won't, so could you briefly yeah. explain this term? Yeah, of course, of course. So um, there's a, a couple of things uh, for my thesis uh, in, in the UK that I did. Uh, one of them is called relative deprivation, and the other one is called envy. And envy is actually split up into two uh, versions of envy. So most of the time when we think of envy, it's kind of like, oh, that's a bad thing to ha be envious of someone, right? You know, that green-eyed monster type of mentality. Um, but the, in psychology, there's uh, more of a disconnect into what envy is. So there's kind of the malicious envy, uh, which would be, you know, you envying someone who's in a position above you and wanting to bring them down. So like bring them down off that pedestal that they're standing. Um, and then there's benign envy, which is uh, you know you viewing that envious of person of a person who's above you, but instead of trying to pull them down, you're trying to strive up towards them. Oh okay. Yeah. So, you so, so it's like having an ambition. Yeah, yeah. It's more of like you could almost think of it as role models. You know, you you have a role model whose level you want to achieve. And so you work towards uh, their level, you know, motivating yourself. And so that's, you know, one aspect of comparing yourself to someone else in society. And the other aspect is that relative deprivation thing that I spoke of. And that's uh, when you have peer comparisons and they end up in anger and resentment. So you kind of have a cognitive appraisal or you think of the comparison and you have a negative affective reaction to that. So a negative emotional response to that comparison. And that's the two kind of aspects of relative deprivation. Um, you, we see this in sport. Um, you can kind of think of in a team setting, if somebody gets a starting position, let's say on the basketball team, there's a starting position, and the other person's on the bench. And the person on the bench does not feel that the starting player deserves his spot in the starting rotation. So they feel anger and resentment towards that person because they're getting something that, uh, in, in whatever, say it's me, uh, in my opinion, is undeserved. So I feel anger and resentment to that, towards that person. And usually we see that uh, lead to negative health effects in terms of well-being, mental well-being, and physical well-being. So social deprivation is what you use to describe feeling anger and resentment because of envy? Correct, Is yeah. it the same as envy? It's, there are different, there are actually different constructs. So um, when you, let's say we're doing a correlation analysis, um, you see relative deprivation correlate with different variables and more strongly than envy, which suggests that they are actually separate constructs. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. Still, I'm, I'm still not totally sure what the difference between envy and relative you deprivation is. Could it be called a type of envy? I guess it's because I'm mixing up the the psychology term envy and envy like as a, a 
as a populist term, definitely, right. definitely, yeah. So that's why I like the term social comparisons or mechanisms of social comparison, because that gets a little bit, we all know what a social comparison is, you know, you comparing yourself to your peers and others in society. Um, and, and under that kind of umbrella term, you have relative deprivation, which is a little bit more of a psychological definition thing, uh, and you have envy, which Again, if you, if you clear, you have to clearly define things in psychology. That's really important, um, and to make sure that they're, you know, we have valid constructs. So we're making sure that we're measuring what we are actually measuring, uh, and that it happens consistently. So we consistently see it across many different people. You know, hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, they score the same. They score similarly, um, and those are kind of psychometric properties of how you build scales and like how you uh, try and identify these psychological constructs. Okay. It is getting a little bit technical there. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm just kind of trying to understand mm -hmm. the, the area. Yeah. Um, so is this is this sort of the broader psychology that you study is like about about emotions or is it about social relations? Like yeah. what other kinds of psychology do you read to help you understand? Right, right. So a lot of it is um, health-based. So how, how does this impact people's well-being and people's health? Um, that, that is primarily what uh, we're looking at in, you know, how do these, you know, you think of social media too, you know, that constant comparison to other people in your social network and how that can lead to feeling shitty about yourself, really, mm -hmm. um, you know, because on social media, people do present their best selves, and you know you have that constant feedback that maybe you're not good enough, maybe you have less, or you are different. So those those uh, emotional causes can lead to uh, problems in health and well-being. Okay. And so there is a, a thinking aspect to it, a cognitive aspect to it, and there is an emotional aspect to it as well. So it kind of goes hand in hand, um, and that's kind of where the mindfulness comes in as well, is to see if that can help mitigate these feelings or um, stop them, really. Okay, so going into your honors paper, yeah. uh, what, what was it that you did your honors paper have an argument or was it kind of like a, like a survey or like a yeah. research? Really what it was is uh, it was a questionnaire um, and a bunch of people filled it out. We had uh, two probably about 1,200 people fill out this questionnaire. A and um, what we saw was we measured relative deprivation and how it affects people with symptoms of de depression, anxiety, and stress. And that's called the DAS-21 scale, D-A-S-S-21 scale. Um, were, and these that was, all, uh, were these all, sorry, were, were these all U of R students that you surveyed? No, no, actually uh, it was a little bit of U of R students and then it was a little bit of general population. Um, there's this uh, platform called Crowdflower in which you pay people nominal amounts, like we're talking 50, 60 cents, uh, to complete a survey. And they complete it for you and you just have the results very quickly like that. Hmm. Um, so it's a great way to gather data quickly. The only problem is it, it costs money, so you do need uh, a little bit of funding to get that going. I see. Yeah. Oh, that's all good. It, it is, yeah. <coughs> okay. Yeah. So, okay, so you, you surveyed these people. The SABS, fa what, what 
11? The DAS. The DAS. Yeah. Okay. Depression, Depression anxiety, anxiety, stress. stress. Okay. Yeah. So you're measuring their levels of? Uh, really what it is is kind of uh, symptoms. So um, we're not saying that these are people who are clinically depressed or clinically diagnosed with an anxiety disorder or anything like that. That's important to note because um, once you get into the clinical side, it, it kind of goes a little bit to a right. different area. So we're surveying general population. Some of them might be clinically depressed. Some of them may not. Um, but the important thing is to um, that this uh, scale or questionnaire just assesses their symptoms and they right. get a score from that and then we kind of compare it to, you know, we compare it across the sample size. So, you know, you have people at the low end, people at the high end. And uh, what we see is people who are higher in relative deprivation or feel those more negative reactions to their comparisons have more symptoms of depression, anxiety, and stress. Um, but when you have this disposition, dispositional mindfulness, so what it, what it is, it's kind of like a trait like personality mm. um, in the sense that everyone has is on this continuum of mindfulness and you can either be on the low end, the mid end, or the high end, and that can be changed too. So if you are on the lower end, you can improve yourself. Mm. Um, if you're on the high end, you can go higher, you know? Um, and, and, and what we see is people who are higher in mindfulness it's almost like they have that protective factor in the sense that uh, people who are higher in mindfulness, even though they may be high in relative deprivation, their outcomes of depression, anxiety, and stress are lower than people who are low in mindfulness. You know, they have that those higher depression, anxiety, stress symptoms. So you're not you're not bothered as much by comparing yourself to other people if you have this mindfulness quality. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, the tough thing is you can't really identify specifically what the mechanism is that's kind of protecting. Um, there's only a, th a theory that's just kind of been recent uh, that kind of suggests that it's more accept the acceptance factor of mindfulness that kind of protects against those, um, the depression, anxiety, and stress kind of mental health aspects. Um, you know, but really, we're not we're not sure. Um, we haven't had a theoretical framework to test out these questions for a while, and even the one that just came out was only 2017. So there's not a lot of research behind it, too. So you know, this is you know, mindfulness research is you know, nearly 30 years old now, but really, it's only started to build within the last. And five years and it's really exploding here in the last three years. I am hearing the word mindfulness a lot. Yeah, um, it's a hot like, button thing. Like a sure. lot of people are doing like workshops on mindfulness yeah. and like using it in therapy and yeah. things like that. So yeah. uh, do you think do you think this is like a good thing? Are you happy to see mindfulness applied to so many things? Or do you think it ever gets misconstrued? I, I think I think there you know there's a debate about are we bastardizing the original Buddhist <laughs> definition of mindfulness. You know, there's yeah. that cultural appropriation factor that people are, some people are unhappy about, um, which is fair, you know, like, I, I would imagine that the Buddhist mindfulness is very different from the mindfulness that we have here. Uh, yeah, I would think so. Yeah, and the problem with it too is when you say mindfulness, 
you don't necessarily know if it's that trait level mindfulness or the skill of actually doing the meditation. You know, that's a skill that you can build towards. That's what we call mindfulness as well. And, and even just like the state that you are in while doing, let's say, a meditation or even yoga is good for uh, building that trait level. Uh, you know, those states that you're in, we call that mindfulness as well. So um, there's a little bit of discrepancies in terms of labeling everything mindfulness, but there, you know, uh, there's different definitions. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's being tossed around a lot. Um, but at the end of the day, there's research to support that it is improving people's lives. And I think that, that's what we want to get to. And that, that's the main focus. And, you know, we might be bastardizing it a little bit, but at the end of the day, we're helping people. And that's the main priority. All right. Um, so your honors was the results of that survey that you did. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there anything else, like, did you kind of build on that? Um, not quite. So, what for my uh, for my master's dissertation, I basically did the same thing, but without the mindfulness component. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I just studied the social comparisons and um, the social comparison, the well-being outcomes of university athletes. Um, so try to bring it over to that sport field first, and I wanted to. I really wanted to build it in steps so that I didn't get too ahead of myself. So I want, wanted to establish first that relative deprivation affects well-being. So we've, I've done that now. You know, we've kind of established that it does make a difference uh, in negatively affecting uh, athlete well-being. And uh, you know, for the PhD, I think I want to kind of bring in that mindfulness component uh, with, with just not just university athletes, but other athletes as well. So I can generalize a little bit better. And, uh, and then take it one step further and see if I can do some sort of intervention as well. Will that, do you think that intervention will still be focused on athletes? Uh, you know what, I, I hope so, yeah. Um, because I want to, I want to be the first to get to my area. Yeah. I don't want to be scooped by someone else. Right. Um, so I, I really want to see if I can do all my work quickly and publish very quickly so that I can be first because you know it, it's right that is kind of the thing with graduate research is that definitely you, you don't want to be stolen yeah yeah else. that's the that's the cutthroat business of academia that no one talks about and it gets swept under the table um, but it is cutthroat and if you're not if you're not first you're last <laughs> and and I, I mean with a topic like mindfulness I'm sure that a lot of people have a lot to gain from understanding this stuff, which is great. You, you want yeah. a lot of people working on it, yeah. but it also, I guess it is your livelihood as well. So. It is, yeah. If I, if I don't publish first, and then I don't get a job, and then I'm, you know, begging for food stamps and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's, that's good that you have that niche uh, of, of athletes. Um, I, uh, were you surprised by any of the results of, like, comparing the effects on health? Like, how, yeah. how problematic can these comparisons be to an athlete's health? Yeah, so what uh, the most interesting aspect of it is I was totally wrong about the envy. Um, oh. The envy did, basically did nothing. Um, oh, okay. It was not, uh, you know, you kind of think of it as predictors and outcomes. So uh, A predicts B. Um, so envy predicts well-being. 
and that didn't happen. Um, and, and so I, that was a big surprise. Like benign envy did not correlate with pretty much anything except for conscientiousness, which is that personality uh, aspect, conscientiousness. Uh, and malicious envy um, was kind of similar to relative deprivation. I believe the correlation was 0.3. So that's a low to medium uh, correlation. Um, but it didn't predict uh, negative well-being outcomes. Hmm. But relative deprivation did. Okay. So that's kind of why I say that they are separate, because relative deprivation might matter more so than envy. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, what, did you see any, like, uh, like, seriously negative health outcomes that, like, made you very concerned? Or, like, were you kind of seeing those before you even went in right. to the research? Um, you know what? It's kind of funny. There, There's a level of taking a step back when you look at research um, that probably, you know, you don't quite get that empathy towards the numbers on the screen as mm -hmm. much as you probably should have. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, uh, you know, I've done research in child trauma and stuff like that as yeah. well. And, you know, even though you acknowledge that these are human beings and, you know, you have that in the back of your mind, when you're going through the numbers, it's definitely not front of mind. Um, so I wouldn't say that I've noticed explicitly people who have deep concerns. And even if I did, uh, I couldn't really reach out to them because it's about yeah. confidentiality and, you know, I can't tie their, uh, their research to them either. So even if I did see that, oh no, like this person's really struggling, uh, there's nothing I could really do about it. Right. And um, it is, you are, I guess, kind of quantifying it as a number yeah. um, by that DAS score. So yeah. uh, I, I guess you wouldn't really have like, uh, like, like, uh, what do you call it? Like anecdotes mm -hmm. to tell or anything because it's all yeah. numbers. Yeah, exactly. The, I, you know, that would be something that I'd like to do more so in the intervention is uh, a little bit of qualitative yeah. um, in the sense that I'd love to get the athletes when they do do the intervention to do like a diary um, and to talk about um, you know what they're going through how they're doing with their mindfulness you know if they're having a struggle on, on a couple of days or if there's been a week of struggle you know that sort of thing and that's something that could uh, we could dive deeper into um, which will be important in the future yeah okay uh, welcome back uh, so, before we were talking about how you are thinking of doing more qualitative research yeah. for your PhD, um, but you also told me, I think, that you don't really know what your PhD proposal is yet. Um, yeah. Do you just kind of have ideas floating around? Is yeah, that yeah. So, uh, for those of you who don't know, in a PhD, um, you have to do comprehensive examinations. Um, okay. before you actually are allowed to propose. Mm -hmm. And so I have to complete the, the comprehensive exams uh, between 12 and 24 months into my PhD program. Um, so I'm hoping to do it uh, next summer, uh, do the comps, and then I would pr kind of propose after that within the next you know year or so, and then hopefully take you know a year or two to kind of do the data collection and analysis and, and stuff like that. So it is it is a while away. Um, that's why PhDs take so long, just yeah. because you got, you got a lot of things to do. And what, what are you being tested on in those comprehensive exams? 
it's all a whole bunch of different stuff. I, to be honest, I don't really know. Oh, okay. <laughs> is it is it every PhD student takes the same one, or does it depend on what you're studying? Yeah, so it depends on the university, actually. So it varies university to university. Um, uh, our, our instructor, uh, our PhD kind of seminar instructor, uh, Dr. Kando, basically said that uh, Regina is one of the easier ones in the sense that you have four questions to answer. You study for about six months on a variety of topics. Um, you get four questions and you get two weeks to answer those questions. Mm. And I imagine it's a lot of work and effort to answering those questions. Um, and then you have an oral presentation or an oral test uh, on it as well. Uh, and that's kind of the extent of it, but uh, it's super stressful because if you don't uh, pass, then they kick you out of grad school. Yeah. So you need to you need to be on you know on top of it and really focus your efforts and energy into it, uh, and then you can continue on with the proposal. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So okay. So you're you're just studying for that right now. I didn't know about that, by the way. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad that I do because that's gonna I'm gonna factor that in. When I'm thinking about whether I want a PhD. Yeah. Um, uh, but you also said that while you were working on that, you have some side projects that you're doing. Yeah. Um, so what wh what are you doing that is exciting to you right now? Yeah. So right now, uh, starting to kind of propose or put forth to ethics um, two projects. One of them is an extension of the. Uh, off the master's thesis where I do add that mindfulness component in, yeah. uh, that dispositional mindfulness, and see if that kind of translates. And I'm thinking about doing a crowd flower study with that one um, so that I can get hopefully some athletes who are continuing on now, but also some former collegiate athletes. Oh, okay. And, and so that I can see if it, uh, the data and the evidence kind of supports not just in university athletes, but kind of all college athletes, you know, uh, current and former. Okay. Um, and I should be able to get a larger sample size with that, because with my master's thesis, I only got 125 students uh, at the end of it, and I'm hoping I really want like a thousand. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, yeah, to really, you know, to really establish it um, as as a real as a real thing, honestly. Um, it's something I can build on. Uh, and then the second project is kind of neat. Uh, we do concussion testing at the U of R. Oh, yeah. So all of our university athletes have to go through baseline testing before they start the season. It's kind of mandatory for uh, most of them. It's a little bit different for all of them. Uh, it depends on how, uh, what sport you play and how much actual testing you have to do. But one of the tests that we do is called a neural tracker. And uh, you put on these 3D glasses and you watch a bunch of tennis balls bounce around on the screen and you try and focus and remember uh, four of them. Uh, you know, they turn two, uh, they turn orange for about two seconds and then you go to follow them. And if you do really well, it gets faster. If you don't do well, it gets slower. And so uh, my kind of hypothesis is that people who are higher in, in mindfulness should have a higher attention and awareness in the present moment and kind of that monitoring uh, experience. So they should perform better on uh, this task than someone with low mindfulness. And so we're gonna test that. Um, oh, okay. They'll just do like a quick little survey and um, and then they'll do the neurotracker exam or test or 
however you want to call it, exercise, and uh, and see how that uh, turns out. Okay. So are you? Is that something that you would like publish like a research report for? Like yeah. what would come out of that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's exactly it. Uh, pretty much all the research that I do is hoping to publish it, oh, okay. um, because uh, publish or perish is the right. academic motto, and I would prefer not to perish. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Yes, yes. Okay. So yeah, that's kind of uh, the goal of all of the research projects. Okay. So uh, w once you get like to a master's level, would you say that you're kind of constantly trying to publish things? Or like, yeah. when in your academic career did you start? I suppose it depends life? on your goals, mm -hmm. right? So like for myself, because I have the goal of a career in academia, I've been constantly try thinking about publishing and trying to get published research out there. Like I've got four publications already, which is oh, ahead of where most master's students are. I believe the statistic in psychology is most master's students uh, finish their master's with one publication. Mm -hmm. So I've got three more right now and I'm kind of hoping to publish at minimum two per year um, for my entire PhD. So that would roughly get me around 15 or so by the time I finish, hopefully again, um, and that would make me more hireable. Yeah. Uh, and and that's, that's kind of my goal is uh, to work my ass off and publish as much as, much as I possibly can. Right. And where do, where do you submit to? What kind of journals uh, have been interested yeah. in your work? Um, so, no journals have been interested in my work <laughs> okay. yet. Okay. Uh -huh. Sorry that I'm sorry to wound you. <laughs> um, but right now, one of the target journals is uh, Journal of uh, the Sports Psychologist. Oh, um, okay. So that's one of them, Journal of Sport and Exercise Psychology. Uh, would be another target uh, journal. Um, yeah, maybe maybe it gets into mindfulness. Uh, mm. There's a journal called Mindfulness, oh, actually. Oh, cool, cool. Um, and so some of the mindfulness research I'm going to try and publish in there because it's a really good uh, journal and it's growing and it's becoming more uh, accepted in the field. And that's the other thing, too, is you don't just want to publish in shit journals. You need to publish in the good journals. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So where, where are your publications? Where, where could people read them if they wanted to? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I usually direct people to go to my ResearchGate profile. Um, if you just Google in ResearchGate, uh, Tyler Meadows, or Tyler J.S. Meadows, I usually add my middle initials in there every time. Okay. Um, that's, that's something that's kind of been important to me. And uh, you might have to create, like, a free account on there to actually view it, but... Uh, all the studies that I do put on there are free. You can just click and there's a PDF link to them and you can read them all from there. Interesting. Yeah. Is ResearchGate uh, common, commonly used among yeah. post-grad students, you were saying? You know what? I, I think it's huge. Uh, it, it is, uh, I think, I, in my opinion, it's the best social network for researchers. Um, in terms, like, I can look up a lot of people's articles and I can look up professors uh, whose research interests me and see what they're doing next and see what, you know, I can get notifications on their publications and stuff like that, too. So uh, it's quite good. Uh, Google Scholar is actually getting pretty good at it, too. Oh, really? Uh, in terms of... Like as a social platform? Kind of. Um, so you actually get a Google uh, profile if you've got research. Oh. And so I can look up uh, people and their profile 
and I can get alerts when Google Scholar gets notification that they've published. Wow! So yeah, no, it is, it's really helpful when you're following researchers who, uh, for example, created that mindfulness acceptance theory. Oh, right. Uh, so that theoretical framework, I've actually uh, made sure that I get a notification every time someone cites that paper, oh, that's so awesome. that I can read it. I can read the updated uh, research that is using that framework as a basis for their research. Right, because yeah. then you can really stay on top of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and like with like a thousand mindfulness articles published per year. Yeah, you need that, right? Yeah, yeah, you need that. You can't. You can't find them all. So. Okay, yeah. well those are some good tips for me as well. I remember the other day I was, I downloaded a bunch of apps that helped me look at papers, like academic papers from yeah. the journals. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to figure out like, how do people keep on top of this? Like you can't subscribe to every journal, you know, you gotta figure out how to leaf through this. So yeah. it's good to know those little tips yeah. and tricks. The, I find the, I found for myself, the best thing is to go to one of the journals that's most relevant to your research and then just download all the PDFs from like say the last three years <laughs> and that'll give you probably like 150, 200 articles to read and it's overwhelming when you do all that um, but if you just kind of take it day by day just kind of do one to two, read one to two articles a day kind of break it down like that that's what I found most helpful for myself and helping myself not be overwhelmed by the amount of work and reading that you have to do as well yeah, oh boy it is a lot of work it uh, is, yeah well uh, do you think this is this is a good? Uh, is, is there anything else? Like, do you have any uh, any messages that you want to send to people in general? Like, with your research, you know, some yeah. some scholars kind of have like a I don't know, like something that they want people to understand from right. what they've did. Are, do you kind of have any beginnings of that going on? I'm being on? honest, no. No. Like, um, I feel like mindfulness is out there as uh, self-help uh, opportunity. There's tons of apps. You know, you're hearing about it all the time. There's biofeedback with uh, like mindfulness headbands where they measure your brain waves to oh, make sure really? you, and it gives you feedback uh, to if you're in a relaxed state or not. It's crazy. There's so much out there for people. Um, so I'm just trying to focus on, you know, getting my research out there. You know, hopefully uh, once the actual intervention studies kind of come out, uh, maybe that might be helpful. I might have a message more for athletes at that when that time comes. But as for right now, no, not really. Just staying on top of the trends. Yeah, the pretty name much. Of the game. Yeah, it's trying to trying to be first to publish. <laughs> trying to be first in my field. That's that's number one priority for me. All yeah. right. Well, uh, Tyler, it's been a very interesting conversation. Uh, I didn't know about sports psychology as a field before this, so coming away with lots of knowledge. And uh, Tyler, do you want to share your like your Twitter or your LinkedIn or anything like uh, that? Yeah. Uh, just the research gate, actually. Just the research, the research gate? gate is probably my main. Uh, social platform uh, okay. if I'm being honest okay yeah. sweet yeah we will also plug that yeah yeah okay uh, thanks so much for having me on uh, the yeah. number one episode of your thesis yeah you did it